Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz. Good afternoon and welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare. My name is Dr. Stan Schwartz. I'm excited to welcome you today. We've got a special guest for an insightful conversation. And let's go ahead and dive right in. My special guest today is Lauren Vila. She's the Senior Director for Member Value at the Pacific Business Group on Health, which I'll ask her to tell you about in just a minute. And I'm so glad she's here to share her expertise. So with that, Lauren, welcome to 360 degrees to health, of healthcare. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and PBGH? Sure, and thanks for having me, Stan. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Pacific Business Group on Health is an employer coalition. We have been around for over 30 years. We represent um, some of the largest, and in fact, the largest uh, company in the country. And um, with a combined healthcare spend of about $10 billion, 115 million people. So um, we have, as we are a 501c3, we're mission driven. Our mission is to have a better reformed, more value based healthcare system with greater affordability and greater quality. And it has been that for 30 years, although over the years it has, um, the lingo has changed. So we have a couple of bodies of work that we address to really pursue that mission. We have a policy team, spends a good amount of time in D.C. working on educating policymakers, advocating for the voice of purchasers in, uh, in federal policy. We also do some uh, California state policy work. Our membership is quite national in scope, so we can't hit every single state, but we do have a really big California footprint. And we also have a care redesign team. So this is a department of folks, and this work is uh, very California-centric right now, although we're interested in spreading it. But we've been blessed to get some CMMI, CMS funding over the past decade, which has really allowed us to have this team work with provider groups, ambulatory care um, in the California marketplace and change the way they practice primary care, generally speaking. We do we use a collaborative learning model and we've had some really, really great outcomes in diving into the healthcare system and just changing and redesigning how care is delivered. And then we have our membership arm. We are a membership organization, as is the case with many coalitions across the country. And I lead that body of work, which is really working with our very large purchasers. So I take the great work that many of them are doing and spread that. And I also look for dysfunction in the healthcare marketplace where we could change how they purchase and hope to impact the system using their uh, huge marketing leverage. So you mentioned, uh, you know, primary care, which has, you know, always been one of my most interesting topics. And, you know, value is a combination of quality and cost. Can you tell us what some of your members have done to improve value in terms of reducing costs, but you know, how have they looked at quality and how have they, you know, demanded quality and gotten quality transparency? 
Well, I would say first and foremost, quality is really important to them. They care, as is the case for employers across the country, generally speaking, they recognize that their employees are their human capital, right? This is their greatest asset. They want them to be healthy. They want them to be well. They want them to be at work. And that means having high quality health care when they need it. So um, I had a conversation one time with a large provider system that was that had a direct ACO contract with a large employer. And the medical director of that system said to me, the most astounding thing about this opportunity to work so directly with this employer is that I've come to understand cost is not their only consideration. They really care about quality. And so that was a little bit of an aha moment for him, which made me realize that perhaps the provider community thinks that all purchasers care about is cost, and it's not. Now, here's the really interesting twist on that. As you know, um, high-quality care can be actually the most cost-effective care. You're getting the diagnosis faster. You're getting the right treatment faster. You don't have a lot of duplication of services because of poor administration. You don't have a lot of wasteful services because you're only doing those things that are clinically evidenced. So the good news is high quality care equals lower cost care. And that's really the priority of these folks. Um, primary care is a pivot for them and how they think about designing their health benefits. And, and we, we're really pushing on that as well. We encourage them to think about primary care and the power thereof. How do they know they're getting good quality? Yeah, good question. So um, in, we would have answered this question differently 10 years ago. It was a major problem, and it's still not a no-brainer. I mean, let's all be honest with ourselves. Measuring quality of healthcare is, um, you know, it's fuzzy. It's hard to get your hands around it. However, there are brilliant data scientists who have, um, number one, been able, thanks to CMS releasing their CMS data for this purpose, are able to get their hands on data. Um, they're using also commercial data, um, you know, publicly available databases and also with relationships with employers and health plans. And so we have a better handle on the data. But number two, brilliant data scientists who are understanding, wow, how can we measure quality? What, how do we define quality? Now, in the early days, it was all about process because that's what we had. Mm -hmm. So did they do the mammogram? Did they do the, you know, the pap smear? And that's great. Uh, I think we've improved on those things as a result of um, of those metrics, but we really need to go and PBJH is really um, devoted and invested in pushing to the next generation, which is patient reported outcomes. So the good news is we have not perfect, but better data infrastructures. We have a better understanding amongst our industry stakeholders, providers, plans, and purchasers that we can and we must measure this stuff. And we have um, sort of an industry push, not as big as it should be right now, but getting bigger on the importance of patient reported outcomes. And, and when I say that, just so your audience is clear, it's not about patient satisfaction, which is important. That is an important measure of patient satisfaction. But it's not about that. It's about really understanding the functional uh, effectiveness of how a treatment is working, right? It's the patient's perspective of when were they able to go back to work? When did they stop feeling so tired? When did they stop throwing up? When could they walk up the stairs? I mean, the, you know, these are things that are specific to the 
procedure or the diagnosis or the condition that really matter to patients and frankly to purchasers because it uh, it helps purchasers understand um, what they're paying for and what is more effective. So in the case of primary care, do your members get the quality data from the providers or do they get it through their ASO carriers like, you know, the Blue Cross or Aetna or whatever? Oh, no, they get it from their ASO carriers. Yeah. Now there might be some, there might be some in some specific relationships um, coming from directly from providers when there's sort of a direct relationship going on. But honestly, the, the carriers play a very important role as an intermediary here and, and we need them and we, we need them to play this role. Um, they don't always play it well, frankly. It's, a, it's a, one of the greatest frustration of all employers is that they don't always feel like they're getting um, the, you know, the best accounting of their data. Um, however, we depend on our carriers to provide, to, to synthesize, aggregate and provide that data to us. So, you know, when you look at the Pacific Business Group on Health Membership, I mean, you've got huge companies. So, you know, do the jumbos like Boeing and Microsoft that are your members, do they have more leverage to get this information than like Joe's Tire and Transmission Shop in Nowhere, Oklahoma? Yes, they do. Let's be honest. They do have more leverage. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Um, but I also would like to say that they don't have quite the leverage you might think. Um, you know, we, they are frustrated as well in the, in the community, there's really basically five carriers that are the intermediary for all of the self-insured employers. And there are thousands and thousands of self-insured employers. It's a very fragmented market who are all using basically five carriers, even if they're using a TPA that is not one of those carriers, because the TPA might be more nimble or they might feel like they have more control guess which networks those TPAs are using. They're using the networks of the five, of the carriers. And in that case, it's the four carriers. So, um, I mean, they, they really, our really, really large employers do not have as much leverage as you might think, number one. But number two, they do have more leverage than, you know, smaller self-insured groups. And I guess what I, it's it's frustrating. I work often with mid-sized companies. I've got some broker buddies who um, who service those companies, and I and you know they will try to bring great ideas to their to their clients. Things like managing the site of care. I mean, these are big opportunities that could make a big difference to those small and mid-sized companies, but um, they're not able to get the leverage within the network. The TPA might be able to make it happen, but the network they lease might not allow it. And that's just, you know, annoying and frustrating all around. It, it's it's a challenge, frankly. No, that's a good, uh, that, that brings me to another question. We have a lot of brokers and benefit consultants who listen in. What in your experience among your broker buddies, as you said, distinguishes a, an effective, a broker that's effective in helping a company get high quality care from one who doesn't? Well, you know, I would say a, a broker who's really working on behalf of their client, and I would put this, you know, for big companies and for small and medium-sized companies as well, the agents that we hire, on our behalf, 
Um, the good ones are really fighting for us. The, number one, they're bringing ideas to us. They're acting as consultants, not just brokers. They're bringing ideas to us. And they're really pushing for change amongst our um, amongst our networks and our um, and the health plans, and they're educating employers about what's wrong in the system. At the end of the day, it is the employer dollar, the employer purchasing power. I mean, they're the ones paying the bill. So at the end of the day, that will make a difference. But harnessing that, educating that, pushing that in the right direction in the same way in the same time is a is a is a big uh, is a very very big lift. So I would say I, I sometimes um, have referred to them as the white hats and the black hats. You know, we and and I know that there are folks in your audience who know the white hat vendors and the black hat vendors. And the white hat vendors are those vendors who really speak the truth. They typically are paid directly from the employer. They're paid by the employer. They're not sucking money out of the system as a way of you know, paying their fees. It's tempting, I think, for an employer to say, oh, gosh, I've got this broker on retainer because, you know, they're selling me my help. You know, they're selling my stop loss or they're working with my health plan. So they're getting commissions. So therefore, they're free to me. That's not true, or a PBM who offers a very low ASO fee. But, um, and the employer likes that, right? Low ASO fees are good. But you, here's the problem with that approach that often employers will take. In exchange for that low ASO fee or low consultancy fee, the, their agent, their agent, is definitely sucking money out of the system. I mean, nobody works for free. And the problem is the employer then has no way of knowing how much they're paying this vendor. Mm. So what I often say to employers is, I know it's counterintuitive, right? It's counterintuitive to say a high ASO fee might actually be costing them less. But if an employer is paying the vendor directly through a high ASO fee or a consultancy fee and has assurance that there's no money coming from the landscape, from the industry to their agent. If they have assurance of that, I encourage employers to put that in their contract with both the networks, the you know the um, the PBMs, whoever. Their consultant contracts should say, "You are reporting to me any money that you get, and in fact, you're taking no money for my business, and you're reporting to me any money that you get from these companies." And they're putting it also in there, for instance, PBM contract or health plan contract. You are reporting to me any money you are paying this consultant. Employers, if they would do that, would find themselves, that would be a step in, in the right direction. Because what's happening is when there's money going from the system to the agent who is advising the employer, we are creating misaligned incentives because the agent will do what they are compelled to do based on the revenue source coming to them. And I have talked with the good hat vendors and they have shared with me that their, their, their consultancy fee or their ASO fee or whatever, it will be higher to the employer. And sometimes it's hard for the employer to digest that, but I am here to tell your listeners and the employers know that it is at least better to know what you're paying your agent than to allow them to take money from the system, which creates misaligned incentives, which will ultimately end up costing you more. 
Wow, that's really interesting because that you know represents so much hidden cost in healthcare that nobody really sees. Um, does Pacific Business Group on Health maintain a list of white hat vendors or do you vet vendors or make recommendations? Uh, we don't technically officially explicitly do that. Um, I've been known to name drop <laughs> with my members, um, folks I believe are doing something new, innovative, and above all else with high integrity. I have vendors I have specifically worked with on projects in the past. If I feel comfortable with them and I, and I you know, I trust them, I drop their names all the time. Um, and there are, you know, there are new vendors in the marketplace who are saying all the right things. We don't know for sure if it's true until they're tried and tested. But um, but one thing we know is that the existing, you know, the incumbent vendors uh, who time and time again, we see evidence of the opportunity they have to take money from the system and therefore, you know, have misaligned incentives. Um, we, we know who they are. They've been around for a long time. And and, you know, honestly, in all frankness, I believe that they recognize the need to change their business model. I mean, this conversation is not alone to me. This conversation is ongoing. Coalitions across the country are talking with their employers. Employers are understanding, oh, that's what that business model is, is doing. And I believe that we're seeing, um, you know, new business models. Now, you know, there, there are trust issues and I do, you know, trust and verify. Every employer should have in their contract with their consultant and with whatever vendor that consultant is bringing to them that any money going back and forth between the two is made known to that employer. Critically important. Oh, let me just mention one thing for our audience. If you are listening live, there is a question and answer at the bottom of your screen. If you'd like to ask a question, there is no such thing as a bad question. So ask away if you are happy to be listening live. If you're listening to the podcast, sorry. Um, talking about hidden money and transfers of money that uh, are unaccounted for brings us to one of your favorite topics, pharmacy benefit managers. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's where a lot of money transfer uh, changes hands and a lot of value changes hands that doesn't often accrue to the employer. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. It's my favorite conversation, so thanks for bringing it up. Um, so I think pharmacy benefit managers business model is the perfect example of business models that are not really working in the best interest of the folks paying the bill. Historically, that has 100% been the case. Now, I'm not really blaming them. I think there are a lot of reasons that that evolved. And I think purchasers need to step back and take some responsibility for how that was allowed to evolve in the way it did. However, matters not how we got here, where we are is we have, you know, three pharmacy benefit managers who have about 75 or 80% of the business. And I'm talking about all the business, Medicare business, commercial business. This is not a loan to the commercial population, right? Those Part D plans are the same, managed by the same PBMs as our, um, as our pharmacy benefits. And in fact, up until very recently, we're also need, you know, serving the needs of the health plans when we were carved in with our pharmacy benefits. So we have a lot of power. And, um, and historically, the business model has been, and again, 
driven, I'm sure, by purchasers who liked this, that there would be a low ASO fee. And those intermediaries were then allowed to access their fees. Nobody works for free. Their fees came from two, lots of sources, lots of sources, but two major sources. One, they kept some of the rebate from the manufacturers and the rebate they negotiated in order to, um, you know, create a formulary and have market share for the drug, which is a volume. I mean, there's nothing really wrong with rebates. It's a volume discount. The problem is how they're distorting and warping incentives. But um, and then the other way they they their biggest bulk of, of revenue is from uh, spread in what they pay pharmacies. So I think still to this day, some employers don't really realize this. But when um, when a self-insured employer gets a um, is paying their PBM for the drugs that were purchased by their employees, Often what they're paying the PBM is bigger than what the PBM paid the pharmacy, right? right? The, you know, the employee goes, picks up the drug from the pharmacy, and that is called the spread. That difference between what the PBM pays the pharmacy and what the employer pays the PBM is called spread. Those two revenue sources alone, and there are other revenue sources, it gets very convoluted. However, those two... Um, really account for a big bulk of revenues that go to the PBMs. Now, again, I want to be fair about this. This is a business model that we purchasers allowed to happen because as a result, we had a low ASO fee. We thought that would be a really good idea. But as a result, it encouraged a couple of things, right? It encouraged the PBM to pick high rebate drugs. Um, and then what they were able to do as they passed more and more of that rebate to the employer, which is a good thing, they were able to say to the employer, hey, the bigger rebate I get you, that's the rebate guarantee, the bigger rebate I get you, the um, you know, the better job I'm doing, because that's like a discount, right? So therefore, I get rewarded for getting you a better discount. So not only does the PBM keep some of the rebate, but now they're getting rewarded for getting a really big rebate and giving a big rebate to the employer. You can see the misaligned incentive then is to identify those drugs that have a very high rebate. Well, if those drugs with a very high rebate are going to be identified and given preferential treatment on a formulary, then you can imagine that the manufacturers who want their drugs to get preferential treatment on a formulary, what are they going to do? offer bigger and bigger and bigger rebates. And so it's, it's, a, it's a double whammy disincentive all the way around. And honestly, I think it's a largely responsible for a lot of the mess we're in. Now, I mentioned earlier, I think the business model is changing a little bit. We are definitely seeing more pass-through of those rebates to employ, especially big employers, probably not so much little employers, but certainly big employers. I think my big, my big employers, I think, are getting a very, very big chunk of those rebates. But I would say this about PBMs who actually have been public with, we now pass, you know, 97% of our rebates back to the employer, which means they're keeping 3%. 3% of a really, 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 really big number is a really big number. Oh, yeah. It still creates the incentive. Anything they keep creates the incentive for them to identify higher rebate drugs. So... D- the okay. Oh, I was just going to ask: Do you have any companies that have 
you know, pharmacy that's pharmacy benefits that are totally transparent, where they can say, this is what I paid for a drug after everything is netted out, all the rebates. This is what I paid. And next year, I want to compare it to another manager who will tell me exactly what I'm going to pay for the same drugs, that kind of transparency. Um, I, I would say I definitely have members who think they do. And I, like I said, I have some of the biggest companies in the world amongst our membership. So I'm pretty sure they have some really, really good contracts. And maybe some of them do have that. Um, I think some of them think they do and they definitely don't. I think some of them think they do and they don't actually know for sure. not able to totally validate it. And I think there are some who just absolutely know that they don't. So there's a continuum here of, um, of, of that going on. Do, have any of your companies been, been effective in getting their members to be good shoppers for healthcare? Consumerism, has that been pervasive? Yeah, gosh, that's an, an interesting conversation. So I, I personally think one of the best and worst things that ever happened to our healthcare system is, you know, consumer driven health plans. I think it's one of the best things and one of the worst things. Why? Um, I mean, I think it's one of the worst things. It was with amazing good intent, but what we've learned is that it's hard for consumers to be good consumers of healthcare. They, it's very complicated. They don't understand it. They're in a hurry. Their, their consumerism stops with how much money they owe with, you know, employer plans are only going to owe so much no matter what. There's a lot of reasons that that doesn't actually promote consumerism. So that's why, and, and mostly I think that patients don't really know how to differentiate between high value care and low value care, right? So consumerism mm -hmm. does not, it did not work in that way. So it's, you know, one of the worst things that ever happened in healthcare. However, <laughs> the reason it's one of the best things that ever happened in healthcare is that it created so much pain for Americans that we are really determined to do something different in this country. We really know we have to do something different. You know, policymakers and researchers have known for many years, long before a consumer-driven health plan, that we needed to do something different. We've known that. However, Americans didn't know that because Americans were so insulated from the cost of health care. But now that Americans are no longer insulated from the cost of health care, which is really miserable for so many reasons, at least we have the outrage of Americans pushing our policymakers and our employers to say, you know what, we can't afford this. We need something to happen. And that, ha and that there is no greater voice for change than the American's voice. There is no greater voice. So we just now need to harness it and, and, and you know, enable it in the right direction. So without naming names, unless you want to, do you have any employers that have really gotten it? They've nailed it. They've got great pharmacy benefits. They've got transparency. They've got high quality care. They know the quality. I mean, has anybody really caught the brass ring on this in your group? Well, I, I think we have, we have employers who are doing some amazing things. We really do. We have employers, and, and I really, I, I'm very hesitant to name them without their permission, although I'm sure. flattering them and saying great things about their work. But we do have employers who have on-site clinic strategies that interface with community providers. Um, we have employers who mandate primary care 
selection. So their folks definitely have a primary care doctor. We have employers who are direct contracting with um, integrated delivery systems in their neighborhoods to provide, to, to have a care system be accountable for total cost of care. And we have employers measuring the heck out of outcomes and quality. Um, we also have employers who are creating centers of excellence and making sure that their folks go to a center of excellence. I, I will share with you um, a story um, about a center of excellence. It was a spine center of excellence and the employer after being involved with this spine center of excellence for a couple of years, identified in their data that the people who went to the center of excellence for spine surgery had much better outcomes. They had less complications. They got back to work faster, less unnecessary surgeries were done. It was clear to this employer that having mandating that all spinal surgeries go through their center of excellence would be a really good idea. It was very clear to this employer that would be a good idea. It's better for the employee to do that. And they made the announcement. I happened to be with my member at a meeting when the announcement went public and there, um, I think actually it was the wall street journal was there and the wall street journal interviewed her and learned all about the new benefit design with a mandatory um, COE use for the spine surgery. And then the um, journalist interviewed me and her, the question she posed to me is, what do you think of that employer forcing all their people to go to their chosen provider? <laughs> and I, I said, I think that question is ridiculous. I think every single employer in this country should do that. I mean, this employer knows that the outcomes are so much better if their folks go to a center of excellence that they are telling their folks, look, you're going to go to a center of excellence, right? So, that, um, you know, it was, I'm, I'm struck. I tell this story often. I've told it to many of my members, actually, because I'm struck by the way the reporter framed that question. We need to change our thinking in this country. This is not about, oh, my employer is making me choose a PCP or my employer is making me go to a select group of providers or my employer is narrowing my formulary and not allowing me to have any old thing that gets prescribed, you know, we need to change that mentality so that Americans think, thank goodness, my employer is really using their power, their data, their know-how to create a better healthcare system for me. That's what we want our employees or the Americans, you know, to think, because I, I can tell you, benefit managers know it. Benefit managers know this to be true that if they did these things, they would have a better healthcare system for their population. However, they are very leery of doing it because the, um, the perception of Americans, their employees, mm -hmm. is that they're not getting the best thing they can get from their employer. And that is a kiss of death for the employer that impacts their culture, it impacts their productivity, it impacts the well-being of their, you know, their folks. So therein lies the balance. I, I often think that we need a campaign so Americans understand that employers are sitting on the capacity to give them a better healthcare experience. 
but they're not using it because they're afraid it will be misunderstood. If, if we can get anything across on your podcast, Dan, I would love it to be that. That's really interesting. So just out of curiosity, has this particular employer presented this particular model at this particular health system? Because I think I know which one it is, but we won't use any names. Yeah. But have they presented sure. it to your group? And why is, why doesn't, is it that fear of not providing choice to the employer, the main obstacle for other people to adopt it? Yep, that's a big obstacle. I mean, this is, I mean, everyone knows who I'm talking about because this information is well, you know, out there. It's a, it's a big obstacle for other, you know, some other employers have adopted it, number one. So that's really the good news. And it's a, the notion that they have to be mindful of the perception of their population. It's a very big obstacle. Um, it, it's also a heavy lift. I mean, I, I guess, Dan, if I were going to make a, you know, using your podcast as a soapbox to create another message, it would be for the C-suite and the senior leadership of American companies to understand that their benefit managers are between a rock and a hard place. They have the C-suite saying, you know, save, save money, but above all else, you weren't putting that, we don't, we don't, you know, no complaints, no complaints, no complaints. That's what the benefit manager is hearing. And so then they're between, you know, their population, all their workers who don't understand this stuff, right? Because who does? It's complicated. Saying, give me choice, give me choice, give me choice. And so we got this guy and gal saying, no complaints. I want no complaints. And mm -hmm. all the guys and gals down here saying, give me choice, give me choice, give me choice. What is this person going to do? The benefits department. They might know what's the right thing to do, but they are stuck. And by the way, they're also somewhat under-resourced. Remember, within companies, benefit departments are um, cost centers. So they're, they don't have flush budgets, um, which is why sometimes they're burying, you know, vendor fees into the product, right, into the delivery system. They don't have flush budgets. Some, not all, but some are under-resourced and they don't have the attention of the CEO to really get him or her to understand the dynamic that's going on here. And, and they may, you know, and, and they are, they don't have the bandwidth and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and they're, um, they don't have like teams of people. So it's, it's a complication in our country. Yeah, my experience has been that narrow networks like that, even if they're centers of excellence, uh, as soon as they butt up against the CEO's spouse, not having his or her favorite doctor or hospital on it uh, tends to be a problem. Hey, one last question before we finish up. So let's go back to my good old friend, the hypothetical Joe's transmission and tire shop, who's got three mm -hmm. or 400 employees scattered across two or three Midwestern states. What kind of leverage... What's the message you'd give to Joe today that, you know, uh -huh. he ain't Boeing and he ain't Microsoft. He needs to be sure his contracts have full transparency, both pharmacy and provider ASO contracts. He knows uh -huh. where money is being spent on his behalf. Uh -huh. He knows about uh -huh. PBMs and he knows about the possibility of centers of excellence what does he ask his benefit advisor at that point? What's the thing he should call up on Monday morning and say, here's what Joe wants for Joe's transmission shop? Uh, well, certainly he should be asking for a complete transparency. I'm going to encourage him. There are some white hats out there. I'm encouraging him to find one. And 
Um, the easiest way to say that is, you know, to talk with groups. Um, I want to really give a plug to Dave Chase's group, Health Rosetta. It's an amazing group that has come together and has certified, I think, I don't know if that's his word, but has certified brokers and agents that they're, you know, doing the right thing or that they're at least tuning into the right thing they know. So I would say to the tire shop, you know, find them. I would also say to the tire shop, if you live in a community where there is a integrated delivery system who is doing direct contracting with some very large employers, you have the opportunity to go to that delivery system. And, and I know that this happens. I'm thinking about Mercy St. Louis, where um, they have contracts with some very large employers, but they also have contracts with some small employers. So um, whether you're and, and getting a contract, whew, that's a really big deal, right? So I'm not suggesting that every small employer can go out there and do a contract, but you can meet the delivery system. You can talk with them. Um, we at PBGH would love to, and, and we are looking at opportunities to bring big company delivery systems to small companies. You know, it's the power of all the purchasers in this country that need to come together, not just the big ones. Number one, the big ones will be made more powerful powerful by their coming together. And many of our members appreciate that. But number two, all the purchasers and self-insured employers in this country need to figure out a way to send messages to the delivery system and at the end of the day, be the boss. And I, I guess that would be a good place to leave this, but, but they should, you know, most immediately wake up, have a conversation with their broker or their agent, ask them some hard questions, get, a, get in touch with uh, Health Rosetta, find yourself a, a broker who will be working on your behalf. Excellent. Hey, Lauren, this has been fun. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you back on our show in the future. Hey, everybody, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, if you want to see any previous episodes or listen to them, just go to Dr. Stan, D-R-S-T-A-N ncom for uh, transcripts of this show will be available shortly and previous episodes. And with that, thanks very much for tuning in and we will see you next month. Stay safe and remember, watch your distance, wash your hands and wear that mask. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 degrees of healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out. <laughs>